know where you are? You're mm-hmm. in the Grotto Pod. Thank God. I'm in the Grotto Pod. Bridget's here with me in the Grotto Pod, where we are safe from all manner of outside intrusions, such as traffic, crazy people on BART, crazy people on the streets. Rain. Bad drivers. Bad drivers. Teenagers. General. Oh, I, I, it's like role reversal in here. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sort of zen today. I want to kill somebody. So well, get ready for that. Okay. Pod I'm trying upstairs. to chill out. I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm trying. You better chill out because today we have the most <gasps> chilled out I of guests. I know. I'm so happy we're talking to him. Baby boomers. Grateful deadheads. Rejoice. Today's guest Beat is lovers. Beat generation lovers. Yeah. Author and historian mm-hmm, and rock and roll sure. publicist Dennis McNally. Woo! is our guest today. Wow, you know, I kind of guessed on that author, historian, and publicist, and that is actually taken from his maybe website. It was, maybe and, it was living in your brain somewhere. Just, it, he could probably help us out with those sort of cosmic connections. <laughs> Dennis is the author of several books, including Desolation, Desolate Angel, Jack Kerouac, The Beat Generation, and America, uh, published in 1979. That was his PhD dissertation. I mean, that does that happen? Well... I know. There's proof that it and also, who gets to write their dissertation on Jack Kerouac? That's so I want awesome. to talk to him about that because so freaking. Cool. I don't want to get too deep into it, but I had once I considered do. getting a PhD only if I could do something like that, and it, uh, oh. I couldn't find the program, so does, I didn't do it. Does not happen very often. Second book is the one he's probably most well known for, and really known for this relationship. His second book is called "A Long Strange Trip: The Inside History of the Grateful Dead." Uh, he was the Grateful Dead's publicist from 1984 until 1995, when right. the Long Strange Trip ended. And I think actually a few years after that, when then they were sort of picking up the pieces and figuring out. He, he has probably seen things that Which you and I could only imagine. I know I can't because we are the squarest. Do you think podcast we can ask him Francisco. about doing acid? Are you not supposed to talk about stuff like that? Uh, I don't know. We didn't talk about this ahead of time. Game time decision. Okay. Uh, his next book on Highway sixty one: Music Race and the Evolution of Cultural Freedom that won an ASCAP award. Uh, that was in two thousand fourteen, and he just published a book of interviews on Jerry Garcia. Jerry on Jerry. Yeah, How about that. Um, Which you sent me, and I thought it was going to be a picture of Dennis, and then I was very surprised. Garcia, that iconic sort of uh, hippie Santa Clausy, yeah, kind of my dad type of face. Uh, he's working on something now, Dennis is, that we're going to talk about yep. a little bit. Uh, I don't have the goods on that one. Um, so that's kind of fun because then we can just find out. We'll find out along with everyone else. This is one of those times where it's someone we don't know. Well, and find out where he's going with it. One uh, of the interesting, interesting things. Slowing down and speaking yeah. in a podcast-type voice. Oh, I need to do that, too. I am interested to see the journey that took him from academia to pop culture. To tripping. To tripping with Captain Trips himself. <laughs> and also, uh, I, you may know this. Isn't one. that the Dennis Leary model? Not Dennis Leary. Uh, uh, Timothy, Timothy Leary. Leary. Dennis Leary is a comic. Right. 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 Timothy Leary was, was the acid a, guru. Right. But he was like a Harvard prof. Right? He was a Harvard professor who became an acid guru. Okay. Jerry He's Garcia, probably however, was Captain Trips. That was his Ken Kesey nickname. Um, one of the things... Big San Francisco story. Both those guys. Well, I want to find out how he got here, too, because mm-hmm. he was a, an army brat. Moved right. all over the place. In fact, lived in my mother's uh, hometown, Bangor, Maine, for a year. Wow. Your mother is from Maine? Summers in Maine. Oh, yeah, yeah. Great yeah, got it. Got it. Got it. Um, so East Coasty. Yeah, very. I want to find out how he got here. And really, I mean, what we're getting today... For you San Francisco people, even those of me who have sort of a complicated relationship with the city, I mean, we're getting a chunk of San Francisco history. He's going to step oh, yeah. in here and kind of tell us 
what was going on. Yeah. So I'm really looking forward to this one. Uh, and Dennis should be arriving any Me moment. Me too. Except, can I just point out that it is raining. Mm-hmm. They're doing all kinds of work on the street right outside the grotto. There Good is no for parking that. for blocks in any direction. And the bridge is backed up. So... We might not see him for a while if he's driving. That's all I'm saying. Interesting. Okay. Well, in that case, sit tight, and yep. uh, we'll be right here, protected from the elements in the grotto pod until Dennis arrives, and then we'll uh, pick up then. Excellent. I can't oh, wait. Can't wait. All right, Dennis McNally, welcome to the grotto pod. Thank you. So, in our intro, we kind of, you know, we, we talked about the books you've written. Um, the cool life you've led. The cool life you've led. <laughs> At least on paper. At least on paper. But you know what? We didn't go through all of your cool life that you led, and that's one of the purposes of this podcast. Because I read, you know, thanks to you for writing a very long and detailed bio on your website. So now I have an idea of how it all worked out. You were an army brat. I was. Which you said in your bio really informed what you became later. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, I'm not sure how deep it goes, but well, the fact is that when you are an army, when you are an army brat, first you're in a unique historical position because until World War II there was no such thing, which I didn't know. Right, you know the army did not spend. You know the, the army was small and did not spend money on on uh, de- what they gleefully called dependents. Um, which is one of the reasons why I love the movie Stagecoach because there's this uh, wife of a cavalry officer traveling out to join her yep. husband. She's a very rare bird. Um, it's a, they needed another woman in the, in the script. But in fact, uh, you know, cavalry, even the officers did not have much family. So uh, eventually it dawned on me, you know, that I was part of this um, uh, unique um, group of people, which was large-scale dependence in, in the 50s, really. Well, and I uh, have never realized that your yeah. generation, you were born in 1949, mm-hmm. were the first generation of military brats. Yep. And and uh, have, you know, assigned, in my mind, um, multiple uh, sociology uh, dissertations in this topic, um, which I concluded would generally find out that um, we were more sophisticated than your average uh, kid in the sense that some of us, not all, remember my, my father also did not wear a uniform. He was a counterintelligence agent. So we did not live on the post. Uh, a lot of those kids oh. never had a clue that they were in America. Exactly. Like America they were playing Little League Baseball in, in Okinawa because, you know, oh, yeah. on, you know, on the base. Um, I never lived on a base. But... Um, also, uh, that we were more damaged uh, social, socially than uh, average on the grounds that, uh, well, the, the rootlessness and the, you know, the every chaos, eternal. And being uprooted over and over. Over and over. And lack of connections to, uh, to family beyond your, mm-hmm. your uh, immediate your one. Family. So, and maybe lack of connection to the U.S. or no? Because you've written about uh, quintessentially American topics. That is true. I hadn't thought of that. Um, probably, I mean, I don't, I, I didn't feel it. I, yeah. You know, you're so immersed in being, um, when your father, in my case, was, uh, although my mother, in fact, my birth mother was in the, they met, uh, she outranked him. Uh, oh, I like uh, that story. Uh, uh, but uh, you're immersed in the, in the, in the uh, Americanness by being in yeah. the part of the army, so. You said, though, specifically what you talked about in your bio was that it contributed to your 
interest in history. I want to talk a little about that interest in history, and eventually we'll get to pop culture too, but what's the, where does the birth of that come from? You're a kid moving around, you're all over the place. And, and, and to expand on that, was it American history that you were initially interested in? Uh, all, I started out uh, with American history and with relatively recent American history. Mm-hmm. By the time I got to graduate school, I was doing stuff that was only, you know, I was writing the biography of them. I started writing the biography of a man who had only died three years before. <clears throat> but, Which I want to hear about. Uh, but um, I have a story. If I have a gift, it's as a storyteller. And to me, you know, history is is a succession of stories and a, and a, a hopefully telling a, a very um, a, a, a story that that touches many lives. Um, at any rate, uh, it began for me in uh, high school uh, when I. Uh, Again, I, I was landing in my fourth high school, um, my my oh. junior and senior years, um, and it was particularly harsh because uh, I was uh, the only person in that high school. It was a very small, very insular this uh, is in town Maine, in Maine, in the backwoods of Maine, and uh, yeah, I mean, you know, high schools generally awful for most people. Um, even secretly, the, the cheerleaders, but but um, I. Um, uh, was the only uh, member of my senior class uh, who had not been there uh, for all four years. Mm. So, I mean, that's that level of... of uh, and I did not fit in on any 30 levels. So anyway, the history teacher there, who was a very lovely man, um, he didn't go out and adopt me, but he gave me a little more slack than most of the people um, in that school. And... Um, and it made history interesting for me. So I started, I was interested in that. And then when I got to college, I discovered that my college had a great history department. Say, so St. Lawrence? At St. Lawrence, yeah. And let me inter- interrupt you here to say, Dennis walked in here with a book written by a former Beatles publicist, Derek Taylor, about 1967, about the summer of love and the Monterey Pop Festival. For you, 1967 was an outcast at a rural high school in Maine, and and the year I graduated, me and, yeah. me and Bruce Springsteen, and and yeah, I, I that the fact that that was 50 years ago. Now, but how far then. away did that feel to you in 1967? Oh, as far away as you could imagine. I mean, I was, was the, going down. Yeah, I knew it was going down. Yeah. One of my great, um, I I got asked to give a. Uh, I was part of a benefit for the uh, Friends of the San Francisco Public Library, which I'm in love with. Um, as are we all. And, yeah. and um, I I um, um, came up with this single memory of, of sitting there. It was my refuge in Dexter, Maine, the, mm-hmm. the Abbott Memorial Library. Um, and and the um, I was sitting there looking at, and I can't tell you whether it was Time or Life magazine, um, and I saw a picture of Jerry Garcia wearing an Uncle Sam hat at the B-Inn. I remember this picture. And I, I, I just sort of went, at the time, I, I, I just went, yeah. I know I did not say, aha, Someday. this is my future. Yeah. Uh, what I, but I, I just looked at it and went, well, that looks interesting. And I, one of the reasons I think more seriously that, that I have studied um, first the Beats and then the, uh, the, 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 uh, the Haight-Ashbury scene, and now I'm working on something that sort of goes in between and before that, I did something about how what led all up to that, um, 
And the reason I did that is because first starting with 1967 and, and being in the backwoods of Maine, and then in college at the extreme north end, of, I mean, we were almost to Montreal, the extreme north end of New York State, I watched the 60s, I was aware of the 60s, from a distance, uh, I, I watched it all go down and um, read about it, and so I've sort of studied it ever since. I think as compensation for the fact that I really, other than a few joints and one major uh, peace march, I didn't really take part. Uh, and I and I felt and I oh and singing uh, we shall overcome a lot. Uh, but you know, but so, so how does that feel then? If it, it I'm, I'm trying to articulate this because it just occurred to me, but. The idea that this thing that became your life's work was something that you missed. Well, by now I don't feel I missed it because mm-hmm. a I worked for the Grateful Dead for twenty five right, years. Made up so for lost I, time. I made up for, so I did a lot of making up for lost time. I guess that's really the answer. No, I, I think I've tasted it, and you know it's it's a it's a complex era. I think there's some incredibly important stuff that went on in the 60s that involved basically the single best uh, challenge to predominant mainstream American values, the, the ones that I regard as less than, than the ones we have to, to rag about, namely everything that has to do with the current presidential administration, like greed and, and ostentation and not caring about uh, you know, the, the broader scope of uh, society, but only about the rich, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and the 60s was this great challenge to all that, intellectual challenge. Didn't work. Mm. Big surprise. I, I, wonder, I wonder, too, though, if that isn't the case for all historians in a way, that you're living in a period that you couldn't totally be part of. Right. I mean, it, that there little has tiny to be, bit of distance is helpful, maybe. Well, and, and you know, and it, and it gives you some kind of perspective. Yeah. You, you know, you want, I mean, if you're a medievalist, you, you know, you want to understand it. You it, There's something about it that profoundly attracts you. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, you know, uh, you're you're not... Absolutely required to be, say, a Roman Catholic if you're studying French medieval right, history. Right. Um, when you're doing that in the 20th century, you can be what you want to be. Right, and I think to say to to your point earlier to call something the 60s is is right. almost productive. dangerous because there's so many slices that make up the 60s. Uh, they're, they're endlessly. There's a great quote by a guy named Lawrence Kasdan who wrote the, the Big Chill, the yeah. filmmaker, and he wrote the Big Chill, and he said. That he talked about how difficult it was to portray the 60s because, in particular, the language, the language and the dress were so outrageous and consciously yeah. so at the time that to portray them now, it's if somebody says groovy, right. everybody's mind shuts down. Yeah, yeah. You, you just you can't. You, you you almost can't. Well, and I feel like I remember a few years ago, I was in La Honda. I was writing about real estate. I was writing about the city, and I met this guy. He's like, oh, I own Ken Kesey's house. And I'm like, oh, i got to see this. So I drove by it, and I was really struck at that moment. You know, I've read a ton, but there weren't many pictures. No. And I was struck that if I – you know, and and to us, you know, I'm 52, so I – you know, I was a little kid. And and as in my generation, I kind of resent the 60s a little bit, you know. (laughs) Because we didn't have It's all the action. Yeah. But – 
you know, reading electric Kool-Aid, I pictured these parties that went on there. It's these fabulous things. But driving by the house, I thought it probably just looked like a party. Like pictures of them, they don't look right. as the pictures well, of the people on the bus. They don't look like they have long hair. Uh, one of my favorite, I did this photo show about the uh, the fiftieth for the fiftieth anniversary for the California Historical Society. And just to point out to your wife's a photographer too, right? Yes, yeah. yes, uh, uh, a really brilliant photographer. Although her, she started in the eighties, uh, so mm. no, none of her pictures were in my show, which all the pictures were from the era. <clears throat> but one of my favorite pictures in the show is of the Merry Pranksters dressed for court, so they. Look Look like they're ready to attend prep school, right? Uh, you know, I mean, I've but, seen pictures like that. And that shocked yeah. me when I realized oh, yeah. that but they didn't have you know like afros like the Mod Squad. No, but on the other hand, um, when they had those parties, uh, the the woods were wired for sound. Right. Uh, there was dayglow day paint splashed everywhere, and for some of the bigger parties, uh, there were flashing red lights because the police would park on the road, right. warning them uh, that if they get out of line, uh, the, the, particularly the party where they uh, welcomed the Hells Angels, which got a lot of buzz around La Honda. So. I just don't understand why you would want to take acid in that environment. I don't know how you got down the hill to go home. Well, well they didn't. They, they were they just there. crashed. Uh, and as a matter of fact, everybody crashed. Uh, no, you know, certainly the, the angels. And the interesting thing about that one was that um, most of the angels got very pacific on, really? acid. on acid. They 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 generally, um, you know, music has charms to soothe the savage Is this beast. before Altamont? Yes. Yeah. This is, oh, yes. This is kind yeah. of, you could trace Altamont to it because they said, look, we gave them acid and they were all calm. And they were all calm. Uh, and, and they, they had all, wine and beer at Altamont. Uh, and and uh, barbiturates. Yeah. Nasty combination. Oh, bad, yeah. But we digress. That's a good no, We do digress. But I, I actually am interested, though, because now you're studying history. You're in this period of, you know, very recent history that you're interested in. I don't know where you got your PhD, but how, who it's was UMass. your advisor, UMass? Okay, and how did you convince them, well, maybe Massachusetts makes sense, she to let a, you do Kerouac as your... She is obsessed with this. I, I mean, I no, don't know no. anyone who has had such a delightful topic and such a vast topic in a way. I was the singular. luckiest person on the planet. Yeah. I agree. And it was a total... It, n- none of it was planned. All of it so I fell awesome. into. Well, you say in your bio that you came in knowing you wanted to do it. Or you had decided to take control of it early. Well, uh, yes. Um, I got to graduate school, and I chose UMass quite honestly and bluntly because it only required one foreign language. And I'm a, Dude, I'm, I have I, been there. Let me I have a wooden that's head about true. foreign languages. Yeah, I, it so, is, and also, cool. coincidentally, my parents had moved to Massachusetts so that at least that first semester, which I had to pay for, um, I was a state mm-hmm. resident. Um, and I discovered that, that a graduate school was not sort of detached ivory tower, let's talk about great thoughts and ideas and stuff. It was training. I was being trained yeah. as a historian. Um, and I and the usual, the traditional training was, you you know, you beat your brains out for four or five years, you pass an exam, and then your your uh, your boss, your your, uh, your mentor, told you what you were going to write about. Some <clears throat> obscure topic that he or she was interested in. For exactly. That <laughs> and that they would then get a chapter out of it for their next book. Exactly. And the deal was, in theory, that you would get a job out of this. Mm-hmm. That they would get you a job. You'd be you in know, the pipeline. You'd be in the pipeline. Yep. You'd have the credentials. No Grateful Dead. And, uh, yeah, forget, right. you forget get the, the Grateful Dead. No, that's, so, that's off the table. I um, was hanging out with a guy who, who turned me on to, my, to the Grateful Dead, and, and, and one night I, I was 
talking out loud about that I would take con- uh, I for once in my life I decided to like you know sort of get on top of the situation instead of just floating along and I said okay rather than follow that track I will come up with a dissertation topic first all that stuff that I'm going to read for the next four years would connect or not but you know would be focused um, and this would make sense and one day I said, oh, maybe I'll do the beats. And my friend said, his papers are at Columbia. You can stay with my friends at the Bronx. Well, you know, having a free place to stay in well, New York. he meaning Jack Kerouac? No, pardon me. Yeah. My buddy, my good buddy. Yes. His, he being his which, papers, which Kerouac's your, papers. Who yes, was okay. your buddy? Uh, my buddy was a guy named Christopher Burns. Okay. He later became the dean of engineering at Washington U. He's passed yep. since. Um, at some point, does Lucian Carr enter the picture for you? He was my first interview. Okay. Um, so okay, so even though you're in Massachusetts, that's not where Jack Kerouac's papers are. They're in no, they're they happen to be at Columbia, Got where it. he briefly uh, attended. Got it. Um, and my and he's so Chris says this, and I go hmm. At that point, there hadn't been a buy. I from the beginning, mm-hmm. I wanted to write a book that would be published in New York, not academic, and therefore um, uh, I went and looked, and as of nineteen, this is now early seventy two. No Kerouac biography. So I go, aha, step one. Step two, my parents lived 20 miles from uh, Lowell, where Kerouac was from. Step three, and and the fact that I had a free place to stay in Manhattan... Big step four. four. Uh, and th- I might add that all those guys are still my be- some of my best friends on the planet. This is but, the happiest academic story I've ever heard. And s- so I, I, um, I spent the summer... I, I finished my master's that May, and spent the summer reading Kerouac. I went to the, uh, there's a wonderful bookstore. It was, I think it's gone. Um, this is 40, 50 years ago. Um, I went to a wonderful bookstore called uh, the Odyssey Bookstore, which is across the street from the from the front gates of Mount Holyoke in South Hadley, Massachusetts, at Romeo Grenier. And Romeo, I bought a bunch of books. He He let me, you know, buy books on credit. He, you know, he was a sweetheart. And I started reading Kerouac. And, and I might add, that bookstore had a better selection of Kerouac, much of which was out of print at this point, three years after he died, um, than big New York City yeah. stores. When you decided this, you were going to pursue this, what had you read already? On the road. That's it. What I was really interested in, I'm a historian, not a literary person. Mm-hmm. What I was really interested in, what I knew somehow immediately... Um, was that here was a guy who had published his first book, The Town of the City. It was kind of Thomas Wolfian, traditional novel, got good reviews. He he had a future as a as a novelist, oh, right, right. and he would have gone and you know taught and written novels on the side. Um, and he junked it all, and he, he had a different expanded idea. and and expanded what he was going to try to do, and he committed suicide metaphorically speaking, yeah. as professionally, because f- from then, which is 1951, when he started writing crazy, shorthand, <laughs> until 1957, when he published On the Road, it was until Malcolm Cowley, uh, another talk about luck, another great lucky story happened for him where the right person at the right time decided they liked what, he's, what they saw and got him into Viking, and then a great review made him famous, a review that never should have happened, a review, 
did not know this story. Oh, this is one of the great accidents of all time. The reviewer for the New York Times in 1957 was a man in Orville nicknamed Prissy Prescott. <laughs> Orville Prescott would have crucified that book. Um, and what happened was he was on vacation. And a man named Gilbert Milstein... Um, they don't name him like that anymore. Uh, Gil- Gilbert, yeah, who was, had been interested, who had ass- he was an editor at the Times, had assigned... Uh, a, a, an article about this is the B generation to John Holmes about five years before. Mm-hmm. So when he so he was in the right place. He got the assignment. He wrote a, a biography. I mean a, a review that, that compared on the road to the sun also rises as a generational statement. And that Excellent. was the end of Kerouac's life yeah. on any number yes. of levels. Yes. It destroyed him mm-hmm. because he was incapable of coping with fame. He had no emotional reserves. Boy, I, I'm sure you've seen it, but have you ever seen uh, the interview with him and Buckley? Yeah. Oh, yes. And who else is it? It's like they're talking about hippies. Oh, and, I, and I forget who else is in it. Anyway, so that that was one of those great, those extraordinary accidents. I wanted to write I, I knew two things one was that he was in many ways a diarist that, that his books were really very close to reality mm-hmm. um, it was not consciously fictionalizing really except except in the lightest of ways and uh, and that that he had taken this extraordinary risk um, and quote one mm-hmm. in his case probably not so much um I think the title of that chapter is Success More or Less. Um, it doesn't end well, that's for sure. It for does now. not end well. And, and at the same early. time, and at the same time, you know, to take the long view, he'd be dead anyway, and he wrote And some he wrote classics. great stuff. And he wrote great stuff. <laughs> so, you know, speaking as a writer, touchstones, yeah. you know. I want to ask you about being a writer, because you, you, you describe yourself as a historian first. How daunting was the task that you were about to undertake, and how much writing had you done up to that point? Great question. I had, you know, written for news, uh, the college newspaper and uh, you know, here, there, and everywhere. But no, not a lot of writing. But I was just sort of had a sufficiently delusional sense of uh, of, of 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 self-respect that I thought I could do it. Did the, organi- the was, oh, sorry, did the organization of the book? You know, how hard was it to organize it? It was, you know, basically uh, chronological. So um, I just made stacks. Um, what happened, as far as being a writer, what happened was that I had, I, I, I say, I, I happen to be a practitioner of Zen Buddhism, so I use this word very carefully and, and with respect. I had a satori. I had a, an enlightenment experience in which I went out to California uh, for my first research trip, and I, I was with my sister and my girlfriend, and my girlfriend would drive three hours. My sister didn't have a license. I would drive 18 hours, and we'd sleep three hours. That's 24 hours. And we drove all the way out and all the way back, flat out, which is sort of perfect for a guy who's writing a book about somebody on, yeah. on the road. On the way back in Arkansas, on I-40, uh, on this fantastically moonlit night, I shut off the car light. It, there, weren't, there weren't any other cars on the road. I was not suicidal in any way. And both my passengers were asleep. It was like 2 in the morning. And the, the moon was super bright. And I shut off the lights. And there was enough mm-hmm. to moon pick light. up the, 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 light on, uh, the uh, white lines on the road. And I just floated for about 15 minutes. And something happened. And I, the reason I know that something happened is that I got back that fall, I had, and I wrote a piece for the campus, uh, UMass Campus Literary Magazine. 
about um, vision, Kerouac's uh, newly published Visions of Cody and uh, the biography, his first, the first biography by Ann Charters. And uh, my favorite professor of all time, um, a man named Jules Shemetsky uh, at UMass, very distinguished guy, um, who had, I'd had his class that spring, and he ran, he almost literally ran up to me that fall after this came out, and he said, what happened to you this summer? The person who wrote this piece, and it was a pretty good piece, was not the person that I had this spring. And he was right. Somewhere in there, something about writing uh, and about rhythm and about ear and how I, how, and I write by ear um, and, and the rhythm of the words that condensed, that crystallized in me. Uh, that is beautiful. And, and I assume it was in Arkansas on I-40. I mean, that was, that was the, that was the That's sort of, it the moment of my summer. Okay, so you, I mean, you said you use the phrase Satori very um, carefully. Yeah. And was it investigating the beats, reading Kerouac that brought you to Zen, or were you already interested in that, and that's why you were interested in Kerouac and the Beats? Um, it's a very long... There's a yeah, too long. Okay. Kind of, sort of. No, well, yeah. the, the, there's a short answer. Okay. That just, the, the, short, the really short answer is kind of, sort of. Okay. Um, Kerouac was a Buddhist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So as part of my research, I had to read a lot of Buddhism right. um, to, to you know, be able to talk about it at, at all coherently. Um, and so I was a dilettante Buddhist because I didn't meditate. So I thought of myself as a Buddhist because it all made sense to me yeah. reading it. And then what happened was about 10 years ago, so 40 years later, long story short, I said, um, what am I not doing that I should be doing? And I, my wife and I had this conversation together, and we said, let's go meditate. Okay, where? San Francisco Zen Center. It's 10 minutes Famous. from my house. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I, you know, walked through the front door and oh, the they, can't, they can't get me out. Yeah, you're on the board now, aren't you? I'm on the board. I, you know, I go, I'm, a, I'm there three or four days a week for various reasons. I'm, I'm still what they call a householder, but I'm there as much as some of the Well, students. this is very un-Buddhist um, thinking on my part, but there is a, a feeling, a, a flavor of fate or destiny in that. I, 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 all I can say is that, that um, 90% of the important stuff that happened in my life was... So I can't, can't claim any credit. It just flipping oh, happened. It. I love it. <laughs> okay. You wrote this book, which I'm pretty sure I read in college when I was going through my Kerouac phase. Um, like many young men. First thing I ever published, actually, was a satire of On the Road. <laughs> I will say, though, it's, it's, it's true easy that, to satire. It was, it's, it was, it's true that young men love Kerouac, but uh, I love Kerouac, and Dharma Bums is still one of my favorite books. I, and and as, a, as a Buddhist, I might add that, uh, that I think Dharma Bums, not that it's, you know... Um, Accurate um, report, reporting, either literally about about Gary or or about Buddhism, preci- precise. Um, it's not scholarly. Let's put it that way. But in fact, it's an important. And there are document. moments of enlightenment that are not described, but you feel, you feel. In reading that book. What he's on the mountains, but 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 as a document, it spread Buddhism in America. It's an important mm-hmm. Dharma document in America in terms of exposing people to the idea of Buddhism. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to push your narrative forward, though. So you finish, the book gets published. Somewhere between there and 1984, you get involved with the Grateful Dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How did you come west? Um, literally the day after I finished the first draft of the Kerouac book, 
I got in my VW Bug and drove to San Francisco. Um, Why? As one does. Uh, one, uh, because I wanted to write a book about the Grateful Dead, and mm-hmm. that's where they were. Um, my best friends were there and because uh, I didn't have any better place to go. But I, but really, the, an- the honest answer is I got to San Francisco in 1974 on that research trip. And I do not exaggerate when I say that 15 minutes after I had entered the city, um, we were driving over Union Street. We were going to eat at Sam Woe's in Chinatown. This, uh, my friend that we were freeloading on for uh, on his, sleeping on his floor um, said, okay, we'll, we'll go into the city and we'll eat, it, we'll eat in Chinatown. And we were driving up Union Street. For, he, he lived in Marin, so we were coming, you know, Lombard and then Union uh, for, for you San Franciscans, um, and, and, and driving over Russian Hill, and I looked around and I said, how much do apartments around here go for? And two years later, I moved three blocks from there, be, not re- even realizing, because I, I didn't have enough of a sense of the city to realize where I was. I found an apartment, it looked good, I'll take it. And um, nice location. Your, your moment was at the crest yes. of Union Street on Russian Hill? It was about halfway up the hill. Yeah. You know, and it makes me sad. I don't think that happens anymore. Economically, I don't think it can. You can't. No, it can't. I, I don't I, think you can just show up anymore. If, if I told people what I paid, they'd cry. <laughs> and, and and every once in a while, I do. Uh, you know, to some young person. Um, well, there's a famous um, story about Ruth Asawa and her husband coming to San Francisco because they heard something like for two dollars you could get a spaghetti dinner, a bottle of wine, and a loaf of bread. It was known for that. It was for true. A long time. It's true. The spaghetti you could you could live cheap. It was the whole point of it, and it, and it's still that still existed in nineteen in the mid seventies. Mm-hmm. I've watched it end. Yeah, it oh, ended. it's ended. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's look up with the Grateful Dead then. So, um, so I wanted to work with the Grateful Dead, and that, and you do not have the time for me to to go through the the skillful way that I seduced the Grateful Dead. The, the, the <laughs> oh, short, but I'm tempted to hear. But the short version is, I wrote a piece about the Grateful Dead uh, I, to introduce myself. I wrote a piece about the New Year's ritual of the Grateful Dead for the Chronicle. Right. And then I met Jerry. And that was 1979, 80? 79, 80. Yeah. The, 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 it was that New Year's, and it was, uh, it was published uh, in the fall of 80. It was a very long piece, and my wonderful editor said, I don't want to cut it, but we have to wait until the ads, there's enough ads to fit you. And the Grateful Dead announced a 13-show run at the Warfield Theater. And I called her up and I said, I think it's time. And she said, you're right. Actually, it ended up being 15, yeah. Oh, my gosh. And let me interrupt you here just to ask. So you had talked just a couple minutes ago about how everything seemed sort of faded and it wasn't of anything you've done. But what I'm hearing is a little bit of ambition as well. Oh, a lot of ambition or at least desire. I certainly knew what I wanted to do. Oh, no, no. I, I had wanted to do that. A year, you know, I started the, the Kerouac book in the summer of 72. I went to my first Grateful Dead concert that fall in the uh, Springfield, Massachusetts, in the Amherst area. Um, and by 73 or certainly 74, I realized that I, I wanted to do two books about the counterculture, whatever you call it, the freak scene, um, in America since World War II. And volume one would be Kerouac in the 40s and 50s, and volume two would be the Grateful Dead in the 60s and 70s. And so I, 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 I was very clear about that. I had no idea. I, I literally didn't have their phone number. I mean, you know, they're the only band well, in the yeah. world with an unlisted phone number. Um, so 
um, there was much much happy accident um, in the in the process of that to introduce me to them. But there's a lot of people who will be inspired by something or someone and think, "Boy, I'd like to meet them someday." But you didn't think that. You thought. I'm going to figure out a way to work with them. Well, I, I, I made a, I made a, a stat. Yes, that's some chutzpah. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, and it was just it was the only way the only way I could see. So it, I wrote this article. In the process of that, I met uh, I interviewed Bill Graham, who was always ready to talk about the Grateful Dead, uh, and had had his phone number in the phone book. Uh, his assistant, who was a deadhead, said that now I get into dead you know deadhead luck. Uh, the assistant gave me the phone number of the office. And, a, and the name of a lady there, Eileen Law, who was my you know dear friend and uh, was the the, the the mother superior of all deadheads. And long story short, through her, I met Jerry, who turned out to have uh, I, oh and and I had sent a copy of the Kerouac book to Jerry. He was a Kerouac guy. Smart. He was very important, and and I intuitively was correct that Kerouac was very important, really important to him um, as a role model. And um, so when he heard, well, he was a 16-year-old kid yeah. going to Saturday classes at the Art Institute in 1958 when On the Road is, uh, you know, a current bestseller. Mm-hmm. Well, and I can't imagine what it would have been like to be a young boy that year reading that book and living here. It, it know, made all that say, sense. Oh, that's where that happened. He was, all, happened. He, was a, he was always, a, you know, sort of an automatic skeptic. San Franciscan, comfortable with the whole, the whole idea of Bohemia, and and you know wanted to be a painter. You know it all fell together. And and his teacher was a guy named Wally Hedrick, who was a beat, who was part of of the beat scene. Um, so and who literally said, "Good on a city lights." The one question I never asked Jerry is, "Did you buy it or did you steal it?" Oh, good question. I should have asked yeah. him. I never did. Uh, really but question. he re- he read on the road and. It changed his life. So when he heard that I was a Kerouac biographer, the long story short of it is, three months later, two months later, he went, "Why don't you do us?" To which I replied, "That sounds like an okay I idea. I, I may be able to fit that in." Did he have that kind of power within their organization to just say that guy? Yes and no. Um, he could certainly say that, but it didn't mean diddly unless I convinced everybody else that it was a good idea. And everybody else had veto power, more or less. If one person in the Grateful Dead, in the band, or the crew, or even the office staff had said, God, that McNally is a, you know, I do not want him around anymore, I might very well never have been able to do it. Let me ask you this. When you're meeting all of these people who are counterculture, you've written about Kerouac, do you introduce yourself as Dr. McNally? Oh, God, no. I've never been Dr. McNally in my life. Except <laughs> once when I got busted. Oh, yeah, that's um, the time. Or like introduce restaurants? Introduce yourself. There, no, Church actually, I, I was, I was the, um, I was the uh, passenger in a car that got pulled over for uh, DUI and... Uh, and I and the the, uh, the the cop was being really snotty to me, and and I just looked at it and said, "It's Doctor McNally." That may be the only time in my entire life, I swear. Well, so you're too. not starstruck at all when you're meeting these people, Jerry? A little bit. I mean, at many? the beginning, but you see, he he swore to me that he was starstruck to read to to meet me because he well, he really liked my book. Weird. It was it was odd. 
I really find it very easy to detach my ego on that because it wasn't me. It was Kerouac. Right, right. Just as I get a lot of, of, ooh, you're Dennis McNally from Deadheads. Bless them. And it's almost invariably, thank you for what you do. You know, I, 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 I have no criticism. It is. I it's mean, lovely. It's gratifying. But I, I am also, I, you know, people say, oh, my wife, you know, chuckles. People walk down the street. Oh, Dennis, you're Dennis McDonald. It's, but it's not me. I'm as close to Jerry as they're going to get. Mm-hmm. And, and they're, they're not reacting to me personally. They're reacting to the fact that I was proximate to him and worked for him. And he picked me. And, and um, thanks, Jerry. I appreciate it. Uh, it's what I wanted to do. And I, and I will also... Um, freely admit that the be careful of what you wish for, you might get it applied. I, it wasn't, you know, there all had, fun. There had to have been a herding um, cats element ooh, to it. Oh, there was a oh, ton, Lord, in, to put it mildly, imagine. being the poses for the Grateful Dead. Well, and I think <laughs> nothing the, but herding cats. One of the misperceptions that people sometimes have that I had for a long time was that you showed up, it was the 80s when you showed up, so right. We assumed they were rich rock stars, and, <laughs> it, was a, and it was a well-run organization. <laughs> oh, for sure. Because I mean, they were just a juggernaut, you know? I mean, I, you know, I went to college in the 80s. To me, me the Grateful Dead, that was like Aerosmith. I mean, I knew Yeah, nothing, they were huge. Right? They were just, you know, or, well, or Led Zeppelin. They were just some gigantic band. Living in huge houses right. in Marin and... Uh, None of them. But they had money problems the whole time. They, they had they had money problems. Well, they went. You, one of their best adventures was they went to uh, to uh, Egypt in 1978 right. to play at the pyramids, which was a marvelous adventure. Um, the whole way that they sort of sold it to themselves was that they'd pay for the vacation by putting out live at the pyramids, right? And long story short. Um, the music was unacceptable to them. Um, it involved their crew was it the being sound cruel. Uh, the, the the piano wasn't tuned because the oh. because the crew had harassed the piano tuner so much he quit, oh. and they couldn't find anybody Whoa. in Cairo to, to 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 do it right. Um, and the end result was that this, that Jerry said, "We're not putting this out. It's not good enough." Also, in general, they. Uh, uh, Kreutzmann, the, the drummer, was playing with one hand because he'd broken his, uh, broken his uh, wrist. And he, they were not at their best. Leave it at that. Um, uh, so, so much for well run. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, <laughs> but what happened, and, so they, and then they put out what probably would be considered to be the worst album ever called Go to Heaven, um, which was... An, uh, I don't know what you can say about it, except this. So that was in 1980. To that point, and and it took them well into the 80s to pay off mm-hmm. Egypt. Um, oh my gosh! What happened? They started. Coincidence. I'm not taking credit. They started becoming the juggernaut that you speak. Let me put it this way: When I joined in 1984 as the publicist, I'd been around for three years. Uh, but but became the publicist in '84. Um, they still played theaters. Mm-hmm. They played right. Berkeley Community Theater that year. They played uh, a theater, a lovely theater in Atlanta. The the I think it was the Fox in Atlanta, which is fabulous. So they were still doing theaters. Now they were also yeah. doing occasional stadiums in a, in New York City because they always had an audience in New York City. Um, year by year, and in 
and in unique ways because it wasn't connected to a record because it didn't put any out until 87. But 83, 84, 85, 86, 87, they, they almost doubled every year. It was like one of those, those the, the, the chip, the size of chips in the, the Silicon Valley, mm. uh, how much it can, the capacity. It, they expanded exponentially from then well into the 90s. But are they selling albums? Because those were also the years... I mean, I didn't know anyone who bought a Grateful Dead album. Well, no, they, they did they not sell tapes. albums. Right. What happened was they that in 19... The other album. thing that happened was that in 1984, um, they allowed... What had happened was that they taping had been sort of tolerated, but not officially, and it, it was, you know, it was up like in the air. underground industry. So what had happened is that by um, spring of 1984, there were so many people taping, and they tape on these long... Uh, on Booms? they put my on, on, selfie yeah. sticks, um, yeah. but yes, um, and there were so many of those in front of the soundboard because obviously you you assume the sound was best at the soundboard um, that the sound guy, the sound engineer Dan Healy, couldn't see the stage. At which point the decision had to be made. Right. Well, so they, they said, pit. "Okay, we'll segregate them." In, a, in the benign sense, we'll put them behind the soundboard. They don't. They don't need to see the stage. They don't care. They're not looking at the stage. They're looking at the the needles on their on the uh, on the recording equipment to make sure that they're not going into the red. We'll put them there. That way, everybody can see the show that wants to see the show, and it worked like a jewel. Well, that you know, I I, I am the grateful that I've gotten you know incredible compliments about that as one of the great promo decisions of all time. No. It was made because they're lousy cops. Because they, they, but smart. They recognized that if they prevented taping, it would destroy the ambiance. Just literally, you'd have to be searching people. This is not a way to start a show. So instead, they trusted the audience not to commercialize it, and they didn't. It was all done. You know, ninety-eight percent was done share and share alike. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, what happened was that act of trust, anthropologically, these little, these little, you know, Sex. relics, yeah. I- these little <laughs> iconic little relics, these tapes, exploded the audience right. because yeah. people. It became an act of community went, to share them. They went viral. They yes. went viral. They went viral before viral. It really viral. was like that in the late eighties. Absolutely. Really well. I'm just looking at our time. There's yeah. so much more I want to talk about <laughs> yeah. that Come I need on. to move forward. But I'm actually interested in the process by which you decided, okay, I've written two books now, uh, chapter one and chapter two of my study of, of the counterculture from 1950 on. I think now I'm going to become a rock and roll publicist. Yike. Well, I didn't write the, the Grateful Dead book until I'd been a oh, okay. rock and roll publicist right. yeah. for about ten years. Okay. Um, no, I I I became the publicist of the Grateful Dead because um, I needed a job and they needed a publicist. And frankly, being a publicist is not exactly rocket science. Okay. Um, I, I I learned on that first day that the idea of being a publicist is you pick up the phone. Now you use other media, although in the end you still need the phone. Uh, I have found it's the hammer. Sure, that's true. Uh, um, when you really want to get somebody to right. do something, you ha- you call them. Um, you know they can ignore an email or a text, but not the phone call. Um, and say to a member of the media, say something nice about my client. Right. So uh, what's changed? I've got a bigger Rolodex now, but but you know. So they so. Being part of that world pretty much enveloped your life for ten years, and and to this day, and to this day, it's how I met my wife. It's how I, you know that they gave me my adopted her daughter, my my other, my daughter. But so professionally Fantastic. and as a writer, 
1995, when Jerry Garcia dies, and they're sort of thrown into, you know, what next? Where does that leave you? Well, you know, I, it left me that I, A, um, That's when you wrote the book, right? Right. Cynically, I said, well, now I know how the story I ends. Mm. I spent the next two years um, working, for, you know, well, I spent the next 12 years working for the Grateful Dead, but or, nine years um, for Grateful Dead Productions. Um, but the, the first two years after Jerry died, I, I was like, I didn't even try and work on the book very much. I, what I did was try and hold the whole scene together. Um, was it unexpected? Not entirely, no. It was still shocking, but it yeah. wasn't unexpected. No, I told people in January of that year, if we traditionally did a visit to Boston in, in September, I said, if I get to Boston. Mm. Mm. I knew. I knew that it would, I didn't expect death necessarily, but I, I you know, he was he had diabetes, you know, you want your diet, your blood sugar reading around 100, his was 200. Yeah, he was a mess. It's not a good sign. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, he was a poster child for a heart attack, which is what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, then, and then in 90s, you know, sort of in 97, I went on halftime with Grateful Dead Productions and, um, and sort of redid all my research because I'd now missed you know fifteen years and reread everything and re-interviewed everybody that, and started writing. That whole time when you were a publicist, did you keep in mind I'm a writer, I'm are a historian, notes, I'm going to keep writing books? Yep. Very you carry a notebook. He just brought forth a pulls small notebook out of his back pocket, and it's been there. It's old it's school. Been there. I love it. You know, it was Car- yeah, I stole that from Kerouac, I suppose. But yes, I um, I kept notes. There's a whole series of. In the Grateful Dead book, of chapters called Interludes, which are about what it felt like to be there. And that's where that material came from. Ooh, that is exciting to me as a structural device. And had you kept in mind... I was proud of that. I like it. <laughs> but had you kept in mind that you would write about something else? You know, what would come oh, after yeah. the Grateful Dead? I didn't know... Um, what happened was that when I finished my Kerouac book, um, I fell into a very deep postpartum depression. So as I was getting near the end of the Grateful Dead book, again, you know, for the second or third time in my life, I got conscious and I said, the way to avoid postpartum depression is to stay pregnant. You need to have a new project before. Were you talking to my mother? <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> I, but I don't necessarily recommend that one. But but for um, but uh, I, I said, you know, have a pro- just. You don't have to be doing it. Just know that it's out there, so that you don't sit there saying, "What am I going to do with the rest of my life?" Which is what I was doing in the the month after uh, uh, that when I f- literally fell off an emotional cliff. This is gold. Um, I love what you're saying. Yeah. So. I, um, I, long story short, went, all right, what's the roots? I, I've, I've now dealt with the, the, you know, the bohemia since World War II. But I'm a historian. Let's go way, let's, let's find the roots of all that. And what evolved was on Highway 61, which was, which basically traced the relationship of white people, young, mostly young, uh, to black music mm. or black culture, starting with Thoreau, who was the first great, um, bohemian, even though he was also Victorian and didn't have a sexual bone in his body, nor ever touch liquor that I know about, um, but was the great social critic who stood up and said, you know, this corporate stuff, I don't think so. So your study is American Bohemia. Oh, it has been. So uh, I traced it from him to Twain, 
um, to ragtime, which introduced rhythm to white people in America, uh, to... Um, uh, and then I had to touch on Kerouac, you know, that, that was cheating, but I, um, and the beat, but the, all the beats in terms of, of, uh, being students of jazz. Um, and it ends with along the last third is about Dylan, who basically brings, uh, certain white elements, uh, and black elements. It's one of the things people think of him as this Woody Guthrie clone, mm. but he was just as much a son of of um, of Lead Belly, well, and sure. and all that. But it's and if you read the criticism, nobody own, ever paid any attention. Left to his own devices, he's going to strap on a Stratocaster and wear leather. And there you go, and ends up being a rock and roller, which is where yeah. it all comes together. Which is why the book ends when he writes on Highway sixty one, conveniently, giving me a very convenient ending. <laughs> now, do you find that? The, these touchstones, these connections that you're making from beginnings of American Bohemia through to, to the 60s, are you the only one doing that? Yeah. Nobody nobody ever – I mean, it's been touched on. If you read some of the um, – uh, Sean – I'm pulling a blank – did a wonderful book on, on Bob Dylan. And he's, he teaches at Princeton and it's not coming. I'm um, thinking of is it, uh, is it Midnight Train? What's that book called? Oh, oh you're thinking of Grill Marcus. Grill Marcus. Yes. That's Grill Marcus, but no, not him. Anyway, um, there are certain places where he sort of hints at it, but nobody, you know, says, "Oh, Dylan." Like for instance, the African American influence on Dylan. It's it's mentioned in places, but nobody sat down and went, "Look at this, 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 and this." And um, so, yeah, no, I was very, I was very proud of that. Uh, I feel like Dylan was only a Woody Guthrie clone for about three years. Pretty much, you know, and 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 he he, he went through he went through phases like you know well, like a, uh, a, a snake shedding a skin. Yeah, um, he liked and, to stay a step ahead. And he was and remember he started as as Little Richard, <laughs> playing you know beating on a piano, playing rock and roll, and 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 then he he found. I might add, starting with Odetta and Lead Belly, he found out folk, and then, you know, yeah, Woody, who, by the way, studied with Lead, Lead Belly, mm-hmm. you know, Woody really captured his attention, and, and eventually so, he brings it all back home, pardon the, the, the lift, <laughs> in rock and roll. I mean, all these years of you watching music made you also in this perfect position to maybe hear music in a new way. Think about music in a new way. I mean, you're next to the Grateful Dead watching, I don't know, musicians every day. Well, I'll, yes, and I, I, but I will tell you one story, which is, which, which is um, a, 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 very, a, a guy I respect greatly um, and who knows a lot more about Zen than I do, um, wrote a book about uh, Bob Dylan as a Zen master, mm. uh, which I think is, is, is very insightful and very wrong. And it's very wrong. Zen is very over you. Well, yeah. And the, the, the point is that, that he's got two pieces of evidence, um, really. One is that Dylan loved paradox, which mm-hmm. it, no argument about that, but that doesn't make you into Zen. Uh, the other, I mean, he, he's a little too hung up on, on, uh, on Judeo-Christian heritage and guilt and sin and revelations. <laughs> but the other is that he did a series of shows at the Budokan. There was a, an album called Live at the Budokan. Well, you know, that's where my rock and roll cynicism came in. He worked at the Budokan because it was the right room for the for the gig. Yeah. <laughs> of course. You know, um, there's there's so much where you think there was somebody. I, I, I'm forgetting the context, but somebody was talking about, or maybe it was that that same uh, thing. Mystery shot. Where where um, 
where they talked about the the um, the music that was being played before the show started. And they were, they were going on, analyzing its significance. And that Dylan picked this and blah, 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 blah. And I went, well, in my experience, it's the sound guy's cassette player or, you know, whatever's current. His, his uh, iPod that he plugged in. And now, I know the difference. Uh, you know, there were Rolling Stones tours where, this, where it started with Take the A-Chain, and I know Keith Richards picked that because I asked somebody about that. But... As one does. Yeah. You know, there's, anyway, there's, there's, a, there's frequently, yeah, I, I have a, um, a fairly uh, jaundiced view of a lot of uh, some of the, the, the imaginings of, of how rock and roll works because I've seen it well, work. Yeah, I was just going to say, I, sort of circling back, like I said earlier, that some people will see, you know, boy, I wish I could meet my idols. That was never your goal. Your goal was, I'm going to work with these people. So you don't have that distance that a lot of people have that allows them to project these incredible things onto these artists. You know, Bob Dylan may not be playing four-dimensional chess, and you probably know because you know what these guys are like. I, I watch Bob Dylan um, careful wearing leather on a steaming hot day. Because <laughs> um, he wanted to look cool. White cowboy boots. Even Bob Step Dylan. into the mud. It was at Eugene, Oregon, and they just rained. Gee, now there's a surprise. Yeah. And and he stepped into the mud and threw a snit about about you know <laughs> his white you know, boots about his white boots getting muddy and and it was like and, and you know and I have I, this is my favorite I, I sp- story I've ever yeah, heard about like Bob Dylan. A third I, a third of my book on Dylan I to this day you know, his lyrics are some of the greatest yes. of uh, poetry of my time. But as a person, you know, he's just a guy. And it was the same with with the members of the Grateful Dead. You know, you you don't want to go, you don't want to look behind that curtain if you if you're going to imagine that any of these guys are heroes because there aren't any. Mm-hmm. And and um, and you know, Jerry was as good and decent a person in terms of the way he treated the people around him as anyone I've ever known. By all Particularly, accounts. you know, as good. I, I mean, he 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 was. He was furious with me once. I deserved. I I didn't look at my watch. I walked up and what, the drummer wanted me to get an something signed for his charity. And I approached Jerry, and he looked at me in this rather icy voice. He said, "You know what time it is." And then I looked at and I, of course I didn't answer. Uh, no. And then I looked. And I went. Oh, it was two minutes before showtime. But he signed it. Wow. And that was, his, you know, in general, um, he was the, the, the best, well, certainly the best boss I'll ever have. Um, but still but, an artist. But he artist. was not a hero. I mean, I'm, well, you know. Well, sure, because as you're saying point. That, I'm thinking, I've heard by all accounts a great guy, but still a guy who must have ignored the people who loved him when they said, Jerry, you need to take care of yourself. Over and over again. Yeah. Mm. Over and over again. And painfully. Yeah. Well, we are getting close to running out of time and I don't want to not talk about what you're working on now yeah uh, well it's it's with it's sort of within the whole um, I'm uh, assuming it's part of the same continuum pretty much um, what happened was that I did this um, I curated a photo show for the California Historical Society for the 50th anniversary of the Summer of Love like everybody else in San Francisco yeah. and um, came out nicely and I, I was very pleased with it and being a historian I, I what I did was I traced what led up to that summer? So I started with Howl, and I talk about uh, the mime troupe and and the actors' works, various the arts. What I call the arts ferment. There was a very interesting 
um, avant-garde art scene in San Francisco yeah. in the late fifties. That you know led up, and, and the people who were in the Haight Ashbury were not kids; they were in their twenties and thirties and had been around, and they'd sort of studied the beats before nineteen sixty-seven. Before nineteen sixty-seven, and then they threw a, they made the big mistake of throwing a party, which attracted twenty thousand people, and suddenly the media found out about it, and all these yeah. kids came. Okay, so I traced the origins of all that, and about halfway through, I said, you know. Because I'd, I'd, I'd stopped. I, it was the first time when I finished the, that Highway 61 book, um, I had gone through two publishing experiences, which were rather disappointing in terms of the publisher. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the long story, and I don't need to badmouth anybody, but it, I, I, I was perfectly willing. And I was showing no signs of a of a uh, depression uh, to take a year off. Yeah. So I took a year off and actually read serious fiction for the first time um, in my adult life. Um, wow. And then I got this gig, which I loved and had fun with. And halfway through it, I said, you know, there's a book here. And that is The Transition from Beat to Freak. Mm, Remember that. that they mm. called themselves freaks, not right. hippies. Yep. Hippie right. is a word made up by a guy named Michael Fallon at the, at the uh, Chronicle. Not Herb Cain. He did make up Beatnik. Yes. Uh, but, I uh, like freak better. Uh, exactly. Well, freak comes out of the black uh, subculture and black language. Mm-hmm. And as much it's got an edge. Mm-hmm. And hippie is the kind of word that a newspaper can happily publish. It also makes me feel icky. Yeah, well, you know, sure. it's 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 ultimately it's diminutive. Um, oh. Anyway, so uh, so yeah, that's what I'm working on, and reading books uh, and and talking with uh, um, some of the people that that you know were part of the the the, the scene and the hate that um, um, you know that are still with us and grabbing them before. Does they, it have a title yet? In my head, it's from beat to freak, but I, I, I have a strong suspicion that'll go away. Why? Why do you think? Because uh, I, I, I just there's got to be a better one. It's too on the nose. I had a I had a title for years for my Grateful Dead book until I realized um, that it required explanation. And as my father said, "Son, if you have to explain a joke or a title, mm. it's a bad joke." Well, you you got to give the people what they want with that title. Well, and I, and 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 you know, I, so I, when I finally got near the actual the end, and I, I suddenly went, "What's the most famous yes, single phrase in the exactly. English language that comes out of the Grateful Dead, <laughs> uh, and that describes their story?" Mm-hmm. Well, then, let's see, uh, "Long Strange <laughs> Trip." So there we go. If you asked me what your book title, if I had to guess, I would have guessed that title. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't know well, a lot about the Grateful Dead. No, but I mean, it was yeah. you know when I realized it was it's like a good title. how could I? It yeah. is. It's a very good title. Yeah. And, and but I did have a, one one deadhead say, "Gee, I like the other one better." Which was the other one? It was called "Waiting to Be Born," which is a fragment oh. from a song because every night was new and different mm-hmm. and improvised. Every night the music was waiting to be born. And in a very abstract, abstruse way, it's a really good title. But it's like a good I say, title if you're on the inside, exactly, yeah. it requires an explanation. It does. Even to most deadheads, it would require an yeah, explanation. That's not good. Well, I. That's a book I want to read. Um, yeah. Give me oh, three yeah, or four sure. years. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm more of a. I'm more of a beat guy and. It may surprise some who know me, but I could hear these stories all day. I got. Oh you. no, I love it. I absolutely. But love we're it. out of time, unfortunately. 
This um, was fantastic. It was great. I loved it. And Dennis, your books are available everywhere. Uh, tell people your website and if you're on Twitter and whatnot. I, I don't. No, I don't. I, I'm old enough to, uh, to say I don't. Oh, Twitter. Um, I do have a website. It's www.dennismcnally, D-E-N-N-I-S-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y.com. Um, and, uh, yeah, the books are available through there or, or on Amazon. And, um, yeah, you know, and uh, and I might add that um, I compulsively answer all emails. So if you have something to say Ooh. to me, write a letter at, at, uh, at there's a place on that website, Contact. and I promise to answer it. That is a very 60s you know, thing to do, you actually are respond a to emails. young person oh, listening to I'm this, uh, I would definitely... Taking us up on that because that's a great thing to yeah. incorporate into your own work. Dennis is living history. That's right. Boom. Uh, as for us here on the Grotto Pod, uh, you can reach me at that Larry Rosen. That's Twitter and Instagram. Uh, again, website for my other podcast is isitgoodforthejews.com. Got a chuckle out of Dennis. There. I get a chuckle out of everyone when I tell I'll them that. One. Also, a good title. And eventually, though, I'm going to write my Bob Dylan book about how he's actually a nice Jewish boy. Bob Zimmerman. Bob Zimmerman. Very you, true. How can they get a hold of you? They can get a hold of me, Larry, at BridgetQuinnAuthor.com or at BQuintrist on Instagram and Twitter. And can I just thank our producers right now? You sure can. Okay, I'd like to thank Lee Kravitz, Beth Weingarner, and Lori Ann Doyle for all their tireless support. And how about that music that we go in and out with? Sugartown, you're the best. All right. Hey, and if you want to follow us on Twitter, uh, at The Grotto Pod. Oh, well said. And email us at grottopod. Uh, at gmail. Do email us. Yeah, we'll, email. we'll answer all our emails, too. We Dennis, totally will. Dennis has inspired us. All our emails. Um, also, is this the time for me to tell everyone what they should be doing this week? Absolutely. And forever, read, write, and just keep working. 